0: you're not going to really ever be able to be that good at it unless someone pushes you over the cliff at some point and tells you to get on with it. Professional services tend to hold on too long in the hope that things are going to get better. Real estate is relatively small in terms of You can be pretty much guaranteed that if you upset someone, you're going to see them on the other side of the table in two years' time when you most need their support.
1: Hello and welcome to The School of Hard Knocks, a new six-part series brought to you by EG Property Podcasts. I'm Sam McClary and I'll be your host. Over the course of this series, we'll meet people who have lived through some of the highs and lows of this wonderful business of real estate. And through our conversations, we will dig deep into the skills, the mindsets, and the structures you need in place to successfully navigate tricky times. In this fourth lesson in the School of Hard Knocks, I'm joined by Jane Hollinshead, Chief People Officer at Canary Wolf Group. Jane started her career in real estate as a lawyer, spending most of it at Adarshall Goddard. While there, Jane had to do one of the hardest things she's ever had to do, a round of redundancies as the GFC took hold. But as you'll hear in this lesson, It's moments like that where you get to build grit and resilience. Sometimes we have to go through hard things to learn, to survive. Jane isn't afraid of hard knocks, not only in the boxing ring where she keeps herself fit and grounded, but in life. She's prepared to take leaps of faith. She understands that sometimes you need to be pushed over the edge and maybe push others too. But if you are pushing, be nice, because real estate is all about connections and relationships. This conversation is filled with useful advice around the power of diversity of skills, the value of your network and finding balance. So, you know the drill, go grab that pen and paper because it's time to enroll yourself in the School of Hard Knocks. Listen hard and enjoy because graduation promises a better grounding to navigate any of the knocks the economy may throw your way. And listen to the end to see who's up next in the Hard Knocks timetable and why honesty, fairness and not stopping till you've achieved what you've set out to do is key to a long, a rewarding career. So Jane Hollinshead, welcome to the School of Hard Knocks. This is lesson number four. Mm. Um, and I guess I've got a confession, or we've got a confession, because I have you to thank for this series, because we were sat in a wine bar in Southwark, mm. probably halfway through the bottle of wine
0: possibly and came Mm.
1: up with an idea of hang on a minute there is so much intelligence out there somewhere in Mm. real estate that could be quite helpful for the current climate so here we are with the school of hard knocks a lesson in resilience Mm. i suppose that um initially the thought was, that, oh this will be really great for our younger colleagues in in real estate, but I think it might be quite helpful for everyone. Mm. So so no pressure for the conversation being that this was your idea yes. and now I'm going to ask you all these questions.
0: And maybe we should apologise to all the other hard knocks as well at the <laughs> same time. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, well we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Um, but let's start at the beginning and I think your story is really interesting because you came into this industry in like right in the middle of quite a big big recession. So 1996 was it that you entered Daddleshores?
0: Well, I mean, I came into the industry even earlier than that. I I started in 1993 and I took my first job at a very small law firm where most of my Friends who I'd been to university with we were taking jobs in really massive law firms, but they're all being made redundant. So, yeah, I guess I started in the generation of bin bags and taxis home and brushing up your CV when you'd only been in employment for years. So, I think you're probably right that coloured the, the future direction of my career in industry
1: let's start there then cuz that that must have been terrifying going going into a job in a in a small industry, in a small law firm mm. watching your friends around you as well struggle and thinking oh my god what's going to happen here but i mean things have turned out all right for you right now so ha- um ha- talk me a little bit through that moment of starting work in a in a tough time and then having to go through a couple more in, in your career as well I,
0: I think it probably goes back even earlier than that so I ended up in real estate completely by accident totally I actually wanted to go to art school um, had a place to go to art school to um ideally do fashion had a last minute panic um, decided that having grown up in a um, single-parent family in Liverpool in the 1980s, which was really colourful but not really amazing in terms of career opportunities, I was going to go down to London, see what London had to offer, stuck a pin in the Ackerham book. <laughs> um, it landed uh, on the LSE, uh, turned up for an interview at the LSE, um, one very grey morning in 1985 um and to my surprise it was national tequila day at the lse <laughs> so i thought oh <laughs> quite fancy this <laughs> this could be quite exciting um so obviously rapidly turned my back on <laughs> <laughs> ingrarian fashion <laughs> <laughs> decided that uh, law might not be a bad thing to get a degree in so i went to the lse to read law um, but in, in, in terms of how that informed my my future um, career, I think one of, one of the things that I was really struck by is that I felt very much an outsider. You know, you turn up at the LSE and everyone is so cool and they're so international and they're really sophisticated and they know exactly what they're doing and I just didn't have a clue. Um, And I suspect that was the first point in time where the the imposter syndrome started kicking in that were the some rules here that someone hadn't quite shared with me. Um, So it was almost a transitory drift into real estate and um into law which I thought I'd only be doing for a couple of years and then I'd be off and I'd be gone because clearly by then I would have been found out anyway (laughs) so when I did start working in a law firm um I didn't really think it was the long-term career goal anyway but what was really extraordinary and it was very serendipitous is that I was working in a very small law firm that in a massive recession was doing some really interesting property deals. So for there on ever, I was always the person that had actually had real estate experience hmm. in the middle of a property recession. So you've always got quite a good sort of career opportunity.
1: And did that, that moment of uh, of those really interesting deals still happening in a recession you know, almost give you the upper hand because you got to see close hand what was happening you've got to get your hands dirty I suppose on on deals that needed real thought it's not the you know it's not the easy stuff that happens in when times are good this is this takes effort and understanding and and intelligence
0: it it does and it requires a level of commerciality that isn't brought into question to the same degree when times are good and I think that the other thing about this working through recessions and really having to learn very quickly is that you are learning in the room at the time which is one of the things that I'm not so sure we're so good at mm. now particularly post-pandemic um, but it, yeah, I mean, that definitely gave me the foundation for what followed after. Did,
1: did you have someone good there who held your hand
0: and talked you through things? Or was it like, Jane, there's this, go figure it out. It's a combination. I think it was a combination of in all the way through in my legal career, I was working with some really top notch lawyers who were just an absolute Pleasure to work with, see how their brains work, see how they negotiated, you know how they thought round corners, but you're not going to really ever be able to be that good at it unless someone pushes you over the cliff at some point and tells you to get on with it. You know, so it's got to be that balance between the two. And I think I had, we uh, both in terms of the first firm I ever worked at, but actually every firm that I then went to, I always had that combination of amazing clients doing really active work fantastic mentors and experts who were super commercial mm. but then the opportunity just to kind of go for it and learn from your own mistakes mm. frankly you know because that's really what gives you the the grit and the hard not bits
1: yeah it? and we shouldn't be frightened of mistakes should be it is is how we learn. it's just don't make them too many times yeah mistakes
0: can be Quite significant in law, so you try not to do too many. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, so, tell me about Adelshaw, Goddard because you were there for the. I guess the bulk of your your career was was there. What what took you there? What and what kept you there? And and I'd love to um, zoom in, perhaps, on some of the some of the highlights you had in in that career, and, and you know, because it's me, some of the low lights as mm. well, some of those tough times.
0: Well. I actually started off at the law firm that was called Theodore Goddard, um, and that was in 96 or so, and um, I I was called Scouse, believe it or not, (laughs) because there weren't many people that were from north of Watford Gap, let alone (laughs) Liverpool, and it was a really, really amazing law firm, Um, and it, it again, had some fantastic clients, fantastic partners. Um, Theodore Goddard merged, um, obviously, to become Adelshaw Goddard. And I think, being very honest, one of the things that kept me there, um, you know, and if we're talking about the highlights of, of, um, you know, the look back, I think the primary reason why I stayed there was because when I was pregnant with my first son, I made the decision that I didn't want to work full-time, I wanted to work part-time and I had the conversation with my clients about how did they feel about this, were they okay if I was only there for three days a week and they said yeah that's cool as long as you can get the deals done and I had the most remarkable partner who I work for who people that worked with me at the time will know exactly who he is and he was a bit of an old dinosaur but one thing that he was extraordinary at was that sponsorship Hmm. if he believed in you and he was happy for me to be a partner and work part-time so I I think I'm not sure but I think I was the first partner working on a part-time basis there and I worked flexibly actually until I left in 2015 and I didn't recognise at the time how unusual that was. It was just something that I knew I needed to do if I was going to stay in the game and I was going to create that sort of equilibrium in the way that I work because it's in, it is quite can be quite an insane job in terms of the hours and the pressure. But it just repaid enormous dividends as far as Theodore Goddard, Adelshaw Goddard was concerned because I just had immense loyalty in terms of what the the trust that they'd put in me, I just wanted to repay that and um, ensure that they were going to get really good value for money for, you know, I don't know what the subsequent 10, 15 years that I was there so i think I think that was the sort of really key differentiator for me, and that was in '96 it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty unusual looking back um, it was really it was a very progressive firm because it was very focused around clients and strategic management of clients and that was something that really really interested me and so um, one of the the things that that you know, I've been very focused on was working on client care, which is interesting because it's actually something that's transferred totally across into my, my current job and actually what you know what I did when I was a consultant. Um, so I sort of worked with some of the really big clients of the firm, actually, this, which is where I came across Linda for the hmm. first time because she was one of my clients, both at Lloyds and at Scottish Widows. Um, and we did some really, really extraordinary deals we grew some phenomenal relationships. Um, I was the head of the real estate sector there, which was more about the sort of strategic oversight of the industry, rather than sort of transactional deal management. And then I was on the governance board. So that was all the really great stuff. Um, and I had a really awesome team, most of whom are they there doing really, really well. Um, and I had some phenomenal clients. On the downside, and the really tricky stuff, um, I think one of the the big, the big moments in terms of what's going on here was the financial crisis. Um, and I think it's so easy now to look back and put it into a logical sequence mm-hmm. of how that house of cards just came in on itself. But at the time, when you were looking into the abyss it was so existential you had no idea how bad it was going to be you had no idea what the contagion was going to be and we were very exposed uh, as, a, as a group to real estate financing you know we did a lot of work with the banks we did a lot of work with the irish banks <laughs> and we were probably overweight in that part of the business and when the cards started collapsing and the dominoes started falling down it happened really really quickly and I think for me that was probably one of the most difficult times because when you're running a professional services outfit it's your, your you know your goodwill gets in the lift and walks out the door every night and when you have to restructure to the degree that we did during the financial crisis you are really impacting people's lives Mm -hmm. and the lives of their families and their future career and that was really tough and it went on for a long long time and i think quite often um maybe not the industry more generally but i think maybe professional services tend to hold on too long in the hope that things are gonna get better. But then on the way up, they pick back up too slowly because they're so burnt. And so I think that there was quite a lot of um, gritty moments. Mm. And I, th- I think that's quite hard to come back from. Yeah. you know. And I think even in an industry like ours, which is very cyclical and very volatile, and And frankly, you know it's I don't know whether it's me getting old, but these cycles tend <laughs> to be smaller and smaller, yeah. but I don't think there was anything that quite was like that um because you couldn't really fathom it, you couldn't really understand it um,
1: what what were some of the most difficult things that you had to do in in that period? Was there anything that you thought i d- I don't know how to do this, I'm just gonna gonna go go for it, or were there because it was different to any other kind of recession that we've been been through as you as you say we sort of happened in fast slow motion Mm. um slow motion car crash. yeah Yeah. um how how did you i guess sort of lean on others if you could lean on others to to help you through it
0: i think it was one of those really interesting things because i was actually a relatively young partner in you know in the sense of the sort of seniority of the partnership and I guess somewhat naively, I thought that those that were more senior than me would have all the answers. (laughs) And I do remember um, a point over the summer before, I think, the October 2008, thinking this just feels wrong. This doesn't feel like previous recessions I've been in. And I remember having conversation with people that had been in the industry much, much longer than me. And there was, a, you know, there was a couple of bad, bad moments, you know, it's, don't worry, it'll all be fine by Christmas. And it was fine by Christmas, but it was like, you know, four or five years later. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think the, the most difficult bit is working out how do you best protect your people. And, y- you know, we've gone through all sorts of different ways of, do we put people on sabbatical, or do we put people on compressed hours, you know, how are we going to protect the workforce so that we are we do have that resilience when we bounce back but then actually there comes a point where you're running out of time on that the market still hasn't picked up and so you are going to have to sort of make restructurings and redundancies and that is just horror you know that's hard that's really hard but I think you know the other thing is how do you you know how do you really create some upside from the lessons learned of, of those type of experiences that you go through. And, and I think, you know, one of the, the really big things for me was the importance of diversification, hmm. you know, and whether that's diversification of your, your assets as a company, whether it's diversification of your clients, whether it's diversification of your own skills as an individual, you know, try and not put all your eggs in one basket because you never know when you're going to have to lean in and pivot and Hmm. start all over again and um, I I think for me you know although everything was fine and we we ended up doing some really fascinating restructuring work for the banks it would have been good to be a bit more hedged Um, and you have to you have to be able to walk away from those things and feel like you've you've learned something because they're quite hard things to get through.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great lesson for, for listeners that d- diversification. I think, um, it, you know, and something to use now, isn't it? And, and especially with real estate, the way it is today, there is so much. Um, so much out there so many different asset classes now so many different roles that you can do so if you as an individual can skill up in in different places and that does give you a little bit of resilience doesn't it does give you a little bit of an edge perhaps if times are getting difficult
0: completely and spend time in looking at how transferable your skills are you know i mean there's so many people that that were very keen to give me advice about if you're a lawyer you got to that's it you're always a lawyer and I don't think as an industry we do spend enough time in terms of the strategy of how we can look at skills rather than qualifications and if we look at you know the characteristics that people have should we be focusing more on that in terms of how we pivot people into emerging sectors or growth areas rather than just keeping people in their swim lanes and it's not how we're going to evolve as an industry. Keeping the swim lanes—that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and you, of course, are a perfect example of that. So, <coughs> 2015, you leave Adelshor Goddard um, just ahead of uh, another um, blip in the the economy when Brexit happens. Oh yeah, forgot uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, thing. I got that. yeah. Um, and you set up on your own in a consultancy yeah. role. Yeah. Um, tell us about how you made that decision. Um, anything that. Um, I guess you learnt from taking the leap. Uh and and the, those years that you were consulting and then and then we'll move on to the the new new it's not new anymore. The current role, that's mm-hmm. what I should say.
0: Um Well, I resigned in the morning. Um, didn't tell my husband until I got home that evening. <laughs> um, interesting dinner that night. <laughs> And I would, I'd love to say that I had a strategy. I didn't have a strategy. I did just feel really strongly that real estate was an amazing industry. There are so many extraordinary people and and um, issues and opportunities in it. I wanted to stay in real estate, but I, I couldn't see, I didn't have the energy to recycle myself yet again in, in, in the law. So I jumped off the cliff with the parachute had absolutely no idea if the parachute was going to open or not and it did it did Um, I think the reason it opened for me and again I think this is a massive lesson irrespective of where you are in the real estate journey is it opened for me because I had a network of people that were unbelievably supportive in terms of um, creating opportunities for me brokering introductions for me coming to me with ideas or suggestions, t- telling me what I was absolutely rubbish at what <laughs> what I should be focusing on and that was what made it work um, I, d- I couldn't have done it without the, the real estate network or the real estate ecosystem um, and the connections that I built up over the 20 years beforehand um, and I think I probably learnt more about myself and the industry in those five years as a, you know, one-man band than I had in, you know, what the the previous decade or more as a lawyer. Um, and again, I think it was this focus on really analysing what are the things that you you can bring that you don't really automatically assume you're you're gonna have or possess. And um, I I think also because of it, it being real estate, I think a lot of the work that I did was, it's very much around people and individuals. And I think quite often I would go in and be able to do strategic advisory work in a way that was probably less threatening to some of those clients because I was a known quantity. I wasn't a really huge consultancy group that was going to be you know lifting up the lid and sort of a bit horrified because it was real estate um and I think that really really helped too you
1: you've um you've talked about relationship quite quite a lot o- already or relationships and um, I want to um delve a bit deeper into into that because I think it's that is you know we talk about real estate as a people industry don't mm-hmm. we and there's a lot of talk and and <coughs> we're getting better at actually being a people in industry but that relationship side of it really 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 is isn't it It is an industry where it's um as much who you know as as what what you know and that that networking side of things And i'm keen to understand from from you if you've found that those relationships have been strengthened. Actually, when um, we've all had to work a bit harder to get where we want to get to, or whether you've—it's just been an ebb and ebb and flow, and it's been uh, depending on how customer focused and relationship focused you
0: are. I think it comes back to the cyclicality. It's of, hard work. Yeah, yeah. Um, of real estate, and whatever whatever part of the cycle that you're in you're going to need people you know and those people might be offering different things um and it might be that you want to insource everything it might be that you want to outsource something but i i think what people and and we we focus on this much better now as an industry is being open to that external different perspective and i think historically we were pretty close and, and and quite introspective in terms of that willingness to look outside for mm. increasing the gene pool or getting that different perspective I, th- I think we're sort of a bit more mature about that but the 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 networks and the relationships i think are all, they're also more professional than they used to be because there's two sides to that aren't there because you know that that that's who you know but it can also be you know exclude a huge number of people. And yep. that's, you know, that's one of our great downfalls in real estate, isn't it? You know, when we talk about, you know, the socioeconomic diversity or the ethnic n- diversity and the number of people that go into real estate that have got parents or relatives that are in real or estate. Or a called Or Hugo. Oh, uh, yeah. i got, I got quite oh, a of yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> so in the G, <laughs> wasn't it? Uh-oh. <laughs> so I, th- I think... <laughs> It's two sides of a coin and I think where we need to get to is that more inclusive aspect of relationship building um, where you're, you are being really open to new and different perspectives and how that's going to all make us stronger as an industry and moving away from that. You know, actually we're not doing ourselves any favours by being super exclusive about who we engage with and who we talk to. Yep. We're making progress on that, I think. We're getting there.
1: Yeah, getting there slowly but surely. And that, you know, again, there, that's that diversification point, isn't it? The the more insight and intelligent from different places we can get in, the more resilient we will be to to cope with the um, cyclical cyclical <laughs> um, nature of of real estate.
0: I, I think also we shouldn't forget that over the last twenty years or so, real estate has become way more operational now and the operational nature of real estate means that you really really have to put people into the mix um, you know whether you're thinking it's people as your customers you know people as your own employees the caliber of the people that you bring in because you can't just clip the coupon for 25 years on the lease and then expect it's all going to be okay at the end of the term yeah. so I think I think that's a really good opportunity for us as a sector to take a very fresh look at our our approach as an industry to people. On top of that, I think that we're moving into areas that you and I wouldn't have even been talking about 10 years ago, you know, whether it's ESG or data or infra and all of that sort of thing. And so it's ripe to go outside of the industry and we, and we should be doing that. We should be looking to bring those skills in, although, I mean, it's obviously going to be, you know, hotly contested talent we should we should be bringing that from outside the industry in order to create that diversity in the ecosystem. Mm. Um I w- I want to move to
1: Canary Wharf group in a little bit, but before we <coughs> get there just um keen to get some insights from you from your consulting days on, you know, some of the some of the wins that you had there working with um, um, the numerous companies that, that you worked with that you thought, yeah, okay, I've got this and I've, I've helped. And any, any, any I don't want to use the f- word failure, but maybe I will, any failures that you saw along the way that you thought, oh, I wish I could have, I wish I could have helped more there. I wish I could have done this and, and, and what you might have taken away from, from those
0: trickier times. I mean, I think the biggest challenge with running your own business is it's just you. And um, you can't do everything that you'd like to do because you can't scale up. And so the upside of having someone that comes in and, and gets under the skin of your business and, you know, is not, you know, the Boston Consulting or equivalent, it's just one person. Is also, it's it's limiting, you know, limiting factor. And I think... There were times where I really thought that there was a great opportunity to create a relationship, but I simply just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. And I think the other challenge around running your own business is that the energy that you need to keep on generating the new relationships and the new leads and the new um, opportunities for work uh, does require a huge amount. And I think for the majority of people I know that have gone into that consultancy gig, it has a shelf life. And again, like I really say, it has a cycle where you, you have an app and you're, you know, everything, you're drinking from the fire hose, there's so much work. And then as the relationships mature, you know, you have to either, you know, go in and do the next one and the next one. And I think that probably means that it will come to an end on, on its cycle. Um, I mean, also, to be to be honest, I don't think some of the tax structures around consultancy work were particularly helpful either, um, and neither was the pandemic. I knew you knew a good lawyer. I know. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't afford it when I was a <laughs> consultant. Um, you know, and the, and the pandemic was, was, you know, that was the real, you know, fly in the ointment when you get your work from sort of being in the room and meeting people and that type of thing
1: how uh, did you manage that because that's it you know that's another um you know moment that people have had to had to go through and a lot of a lot of people you know sort of fresh to this industry have grown up in mm. in that I- environment how did you manage the pandemic when that was you know as you said part of your job was being in the room but you Mm. just couldn't be in the room
0: it was it was incredibly hard i mean in some ways i was lucky in as much as quite a few of the roles that i was involved in at that time were sufficiently mature that they could withstand the transition to the virtual environment Um, and i was seeing quite a lot of work with night frank at that point and you know that whole transition over into, you know, lots of Teams calls and everything just, it, it wasn't so much for challenge because I'd worked with them for so long. I mean, the, the chance to get new work was almost non-existent. And I think most people that you talk to that were in the industry would, would say the same thing. I mean, I'd also, again, coming back to this diversification point, I'd also carefully hedged the work that I, I was doing. So, um, at the same time as doing consultancy work, I'd, I always ha- also had some non-exec roles that were relatively demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a non-exec director at Notting Hill Genesis, um, which was, ex- again, an extraordinary time to be on the board there, because they'd gone through a merger. Um, then there was Grandfall, You know, we were having to manage um, how do you generate surpluses following a comprehensive spending review where there just isn't, you know, the the government subsidies anymore, they're, you know, really complicated businesses, really complicated financial structures and business models, so, you know, that was also taking up quite a lot of my time and um, I was also a a non-exec on the board of Moorfield as well, so, you know, it, it wasn't like everything all shut down in the pandemic there was a certain type of work that shut down but everything else kept going um but I think it would have been really 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 hard if not impossible if that had happened three or four years earlier
1: that um having those other um jobs to do I suppose does that come from you knowing that you should um diversify or do you just need to be busy all the time
0: definitely need to be busy all of the time but there was some design in that process in terms of I knew that if I was making this big leap from a, you know relatively narrow skill set of being a lawyer that I had to go into different roles in order to learn and going onto boards as an non-exec is incredibly valuable in terms of understanding how corporate risk works, mm. understanding board dynamics, um, understanding the different roles um, and how everything sort of glues together, uh, which is kind of the reason why I was saying in that five years, you know, the learning curve just went up exponentially and probably I wouldn't have been able to do the role at Canary Wharf Group had I not had that that real menu of different roles and responsibilities when I was a consultant.
1: Would you recommend consultancy as a job? I'm just thinking, you know, we're hearing a lot about redundancies at the moment. It happens as we go through this mm. this cycle. You've, ha- you've had to do it um, your, yourself. If, if someone finds themselves in that situation, they have got the skills um, from I- um, years in the industry, they have got an open mind to, to learn, would you say give it, give it a go?
0: I'd say give it a go as long as you don't. Have to pay a huge mortgage, and um, you 're the only breadwinner <laughs> you know <it's, laughs> it has risks with thing. it um, i'm not sure the extent to which an ind- as an industry w- we necessarily flex mm. around that consultancy bit as much as we could um, but it's if you have a, 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 some flexibility around the risks you could take and you want to use it as another step in your career then absolutely you know it's it is an extraordinary experience so yeah um
1: so then 2021 comes
0: around (coughs) uh canary wolf comes knocking you go knocking Mm, well we weren't even you know, there weren't any doors involved in this because it was <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> it's pandemic. It's a bit of a sort of slow horses mo- moment <laughs> where I, I met Shoby in Regent's Park and we went for a walk. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I um, had known uh, Becky Worthington for the I don't know the best part of twenty odd years or so, and she'd moved over I think in maybe the, the spring. Um, as Becky is Chief Financial Yeah, sorry, officer. she's CFO. And she just moved over. I think Shoby had joined Canary Wharf in 2019, November 2019. Um, you know, obviously the world had really kind of taken a massive reroute during that time, yep. you know, both in terms of Brexit, pandemic, you know, the change in the working environment and offices. Um, and... I had a conversation with Shobi about, you know, what his views and aspirations were for Canary Wharf. Um, it was a, a greenfield role where I could effectively craft it in, in the way, you know, that I saw fit. But for him, he you know, he wanted to, um, you know, sort of look at the culture, look at the people, look at, you know, all the things that... that um, would support a change in the business strategy of Canary Wharf and it's one of those roles that comes along once in a lifetime and Canary Wharf is such a, a you know it's it's a it's a bit of a legend in the industry isn't it and it's iconic you know in terms of you know visually and reputationally and I didn't know a huge amount about it you know, I hadn't I hadn't really had any dealings with Canary Wharf in my any of my, my previous <laughs> life, so it just seemed like I wasn't going to get I was never going to get that kind of opportunity again. So, yep, I pivoted and wound up the consultancy business and jumped in with both feet to to Canary Wharf at a time when it was again it w- we we were kind of coming out of lockdown, but it was that time when you you know you take one foot out and then you'd be locked down again and it was sort of it was quite a sort of slow opening back up um so yeah i joined in july 21
1: and and since then uh, you touched on it you know the, the changing um nature of offices obviously most people know canary wharf for offices we know it is more diversified yeah. um than that but that's the that's the perception i suppose this mm. is um and there are big towers there um so again, and uh, you know coming into a role when there's a huge amount of transformation mm. going on, a huge amount of uncertainty, i suppose, in what our is gonna gonna do, and you're there um helping with the culture, trying to understand people and human beings and how we how we interact what's what's that been been like and um what have been some of the the wins there for for you over the last couple of years i
0: mean i th- I think it's extraordinary um, and in some way I think it links back to what I was saying about real estate becoming more operational and, and the role of people and I think it's enormous credit that Shoby gets that yeah you, you know you, you what sits outside on the estate are your great assets but so are the people that you know within your business are your greatest assets too and you can deliver a strategy if you've got amazing people in the business that um, do have that external perspective that are working together. And I think one of the unique aspects of Canary Wharf is this ownership, the fact it owns so much of the infrastructure and the spaces between the walls of these buildings. Mm. And the, the, the real privilege of my role is that when we talk about people, we're not just talking about employees, we're talking about our communities that we are in the midst of. We're talking about the visitors that come to the estate, the occupiers that come to the estate. But it's how you, you join all those dots together and you create a compelling narrative which is around that engagement piece. Um, and the opportunity that you get at a time like this where I think customers are looking for um, that partnership Whereas as a landlord, you are almost curating an experience that will encourage and support and help those occupiers bring their next generation into, back into the workplace. Um, is I think it's an, it's a, such an integral part of what we have to do as an industry now. You know, it's the exact opposite of clipping the coupon. It's about... What is it that you're going to do to create the experience? How do you really get under the skin of of what your people want, whatever it is? And it's, um, you know, we've just launched literally in the last week something called Wolf Connect, which is a young um, professionals community network where we um, are opening up to anyone who is next-gen worker um, within Canary Wharf to become part of this professional community. And we're putting on networking events and um, educational mm-hmm. events and sessions and that sort of thing. And And we've just been blown away by the number of people that have, have signed up to do this on the app. In fact, um, someone was telling me the other night that they um, – determine the days that they're coming into the office by looking at the app to work out what events are going to be put on Hmm. so you know of course it's not without its challenges you know real estate is changing and you know I I don't think that we've quite landed on what the end game is going to look like but I do think this um, this real weaving of thinking about what people want and what they want to give back and what they want to um, share and experience is becoming more and more relevant in terms of what our everyday should thinking should be around real estate, so, um, so and, and that's that's basically what I do. I mean, quite a lot of people, you know, with b- a bit of help. From you me. can take the credit. It's <laughs> all right.
1: Um, I, I want to stay with that sort of overcoming the challenges um, for for a moment because I think that's really interesting. About connecting with with people, and I think that that is a change that we've seen in real estate over the mm. last de- decade. That uh, the understanding that it's not just bricks and mortar, it's not mm. just landlord and occupier. It's mm. it's the people that fill fill those places. And I wonder how much that, and it goes back to relationship again, doesn't it? How much is that communication between um the community? Ha- how important is that for navigating ups and ups and downs? If you know your customer, if you know your community, can you manage those ups and downs better? I
0: mean, there's always going to be macroeconomic issues that irrespective of the strength of your relationship, you're not going to overcome them. Um, but I think on a more granular basis, the the glue and the connectivity that you bring to relationships on an ongoing basis where you don't go in just when the lift needs fixing or something is does end up being the distinction between whether you stay, whether you go whether you expand whether you move around somewhere else within the same space um, and I, I I think it would probably be a bit naive to say it's determining factor but I think it's definitely a contributing factor and I think it's also it makes real estate a lot more interesting Mm -hmm. you know people make real estate interesting and I think when you're you're looking at you know the 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 opportunities for that next generation of people that are coming into the industry and they might be coming in at a time where they haven't really had the the sort of in-the-room experience that that we've had I think they need to um, be be confident that this is a people industry It it is something where it's actually not just a virtual environment you have to be in there and live it and breathe it and you know look at the biodiversity around you you know look at the footfall look at you know what people are s- spending their time doing or not doing and you know it's 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 about human behavior yeah yeah
1: so we are rapidly running out of time, which is ama- amazing. It feels like we only just started talking. Um, so I want to come into some some lessons to leave with our with mm. our, our listeners. And um, I was doing my research as one <laughs> does sometimes. And mm. I, I was listening to you on another podcast actually. Mm. You said um, at least two really interesting things. There were mm. more than two, Jane, but the two that I. Um, sort of uh, zoned in on was you uh, there was a great phrase that you used about um balance breeds resilience um and and it was you talking about y- your life and you used to be work 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 work, work mm. and then you realized actually there's there's more to life to this and that's that i'm not going to survive if i do do that i need a bit of balance and then i can survive more things so i wonder if you could talk us through a little bit more about um about that that balance breeds resilience and why that's important
0: well i guess it comes back to to succeed in real estate you need grit don't you i mean let's be honest you need a bit of grit and you need resilience you know that those two things are probably in the same bucket i think the other thing you really need to survive real estate is good judgment um but you're not going to have the grit. You're not going to have the resilience unless you've got the equilibrium and you've got the ability to take that stand back from time to time and reflect on the direction of travel and you, and, and in truth, that's that's you know when we were talking about why I went to work flexibly when I was a lawyer or why I went into consultancy. It's that permanent. You know, you're on the wobble board trying to work out, are you going to stay standing or are you just going to flip over? Um, I think the next generation have got that in spades probably to a degree that my generation didn't. I I think we did work to our detriment. But if you have that equilibrium and you have that ability to put your head up and look around, I think that gives you a degree of um, resilience in terms of, you know, just being able to move to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. If you haven't got that balance, you're just gonna, you're gonna burn out, aren't Mm. you? And if you, you know, and there is no one that benefits from that at all. How do you find it now, that balance? I'm still boxing, so that's that's probably quite a good thing in terms of the balance. Um,
1: Not only for your fancy footwork, but for being able to punch something sometimes. Uh,
0: actually, it's, it's primarily for the punching <laughs> <a> bit. <laughs> Footwork's <laughs> never been my strength. <laughs> <laughs> um, y- I think as you get older, and I think when you've been through these things a couple of times, you are you are more calm about it you are more balanced about it you are you know prepared that you don't have to rush into everything and fix it you know one one of the things that I'm really clear about at Canary Wharf is this is going to take time you know in terms of how you repurpose you know how you upskill how do you change the 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 the, you know the sort of infrastructure whether it's the people or the place or anything else you cannot do that stuff overnight it you know real estate is a super super resilient um asset class because it continually reinvents itself and i think you you, and i think it's a combination of it's it's a very very darwinian part of the world real estate (laughs) because it just keeps on Leaving stuff behind, picking up new things, and it evolves and it goes to the next thing and the next thing. And I think when you combine with that, the most of the people I know in real estate get bored really quickly, really easily. It's it's a really powerful combination of you know people that get bored and an asset class that likes to reinvent itself. But that if you know that in order to do that, you've got to do it in a way that sticks, and it's got to be sustainable. And if it's going to be sustainable, it has to be. With people that are resilient, that are there, you know, that they they're going to look at the long term. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's
1: uh, You're not the first person to talk about sort of this patience around um, cycles. You know, lesson number one from Kevin McCabe. who has been through a few um, uh, cycles. Was like, you know, he said, just worry about tomorrow. And and you know control what you can control mm. and just be calm and ev- if you've got everything in order you'll probably be all right
0: yeah yeah i think that's good advice
1: um so the second of many points was um <laughs> I'm very <worried> about these <laughs> you, they're good you talked about don't be so invested that you can't walk away from something uh which i i, I <laughs> took as really good good advice that's quite well. punchy. it is isn't it <laughs> um don't, you know know what you know what you're doing? But don't put all your eggs in one one basket. If if it doesn't work, be able to say, Do you know what, pivot as you yeah. did with your career.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. But I think isn't that's also part of the equilibrium, isn't mm. it? You know, if you are so invested in something, you're not capable of making an objective decision. You're not again. You're not doing anyone any favors. You know, so it's the objectivity. It's the ability to take that stand back and look in and not not be too scared of the consequences even if the consequences i mean means that you have to walk away um you know i think quite often and again people that i that i talk to who you know have been around the block as many times <laughs> as, as i've been they will quite often say that they stayed too long before they pivoted mm-hmm. um and so i think that you know it's it is that ability to not be Scared of your own shadow, and not be scared of, of what the unknown holds because the chances are it's always going to be fine. That you know, you, you do have to take a very serendipitous view of the future, you know. And I, and I think, you know, Linda was saying that about all these doors opening and closing, and that's the nature of it. But if you're too scared to push the door open because you're too invested in what you're doing at the moment, then y- y- you're not going to create that. Um, really interesting rich career in real estate that will take you in different directions you know you will be in a linear position or you'll be stuck in the same thing and you know, again it comes back to is, is that going to benefit the industry and is that going to benefit the industry probably not
1: yeah or you not very fun is it no no we've got to have a little fun so um close to the end of school bell's gonna bell's <coughs> gonna toll any any time soon um homework what would be the, the lessons that people need to make sure they write down and, and take take home and and let uh, marinate? Um.
0: Um, well, I mean, I think we've covered quite a few of them already, haven't we? I mean, I, I think the, the one thing I would say is try to be nice to the other kids, you know, because <laughs> real estate is relatively small in terms of you can be pretty much guaranteed that if you upset someone... You're going to see them on the other side of a table in two years' time when you most need their support. So, you know, play nicely, (laughs) and you'll probably be quite grateful. (laughs) Um, Yeah,
1: I like it. Play nice. (laughs) Um, Make sure you've got a range of skill sets. Diversify both for you as an individual and your your business. Yeah. Um, Build those relationships. Find your balance. And and box. Box. Yeah. Hit people no, don't, no, hit, don't people. hit people. Be nice to people. Just box. <laughs> but and there are many there are quite a lot of boxing in, in real estate as well, isn't there?
0: I, you? I hear there are. Deborah Cadman. Oh yeah. She's really good, isn't she? Well,
1: maybe yeah. there's maybe we'll set something up, yeah. Jane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that makes you now professor. Of the School of Hard Knocks. Thank you for yeah. for, for joining us. Thank you for um, sharing a bottle of wine with me and coming up with <laughs> coming up with the idea. I think these conversations are really, 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 really interesting. Not just to learn about people's careers and the different paths that people have taken, but those there are so many lessons that that we can learn just from surviving real estate. I suppose. So there you have it. Lesson four of the School of Hard Knocks completed. Another round in the ring done and a battle won. Our guests have borne the scars, so we don't have to. But school is not yet out, and the next lesson comes from a man who should definitely be brandishing a few scars. But while he's had a few knocks, perhaps more than his fair share, you can't see the marks on Neil Sinclair. He brushes himself off, he stays active and thoughtful, and he goes again. And he is grateful and gracious for it, because he's kept grounded by the work he's done for Charity Variety. Because honesty and doing the right thing inspires him, and maybe the world. I think what also has been very important for me is my charity involvement. I had a charity group when I was 18 with my brother. And you won't believe it, but we used to put on dances on Sunday night in the West End because they were closed, and they were only allowed to operate if it was a charity. We used to have these great acts. Of the 60s, the searches. We had the Rolling Stones when they were nothing. We signed up the Beatles, but they never appeared because they were too big by then. See you next time as the bell rings for the school of hard knocks.